Hey guys, welcome to Pop Culture Quorum Deo. This is Jeff Wright back again. This time I've got uh, your favorite co-host, uh, guest co-host, I should say. I don't want to throw Jared on the bus like that. Uh, Terry Gant. Hey. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Is it fair to say we're going to do the good, the bad, and the ugly of the horror genre today? I don't know if that's fair. That's too much of a dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we are going to do the horror genre, though, although this is not new ground for you. So. Yeah, yeah, we talk about horror a lot. Yeah. That's kind of my, my wheelhouse. But, I mean, this has been kind of your idea. Let's look at a genre, look at a film. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's probably a new way to look at the horror genre. Yeah, and so. I think everybody involved had a good time with the Western genre. So I'm looking yeah. forward to getting back to it. Excellent. Uh, this week we're reviewing a specific film as we talk mm-hmm. about the genre. And it's 1973. 73, yeah. This actually, there's a couple of interesting little factoids about this movie that should probably be brought up. As we talk about it. So the movie is called The Legend of Hill House, based on a book called simply Hill House by Richard Matheson, who's most known for uh, his book, um, I Am Legend, which, Mm. of course, is also a a film with Will Smith. Um, So this movie came out about six months before uh, The Exorcist. So when you watch it, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind when you consider um, the like how how much I don't want to spoil too much, but how much more frightening The Exorcist is than this movie, um, and like how much farther they went with the movie than in The Exorcist. Well, even the uh, the feel and look of The Exorcist feels like an evolutionary leap it from does. what we see. It's in a much more those. timeless look to it. Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of The Exorcist still holds up. You know, the pea soup and. Max von Sydow's old man makeup actually kind of still looks like what Max von Sydow looks like as an old man now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's def- it was uh, it's clear that this this movie, The Legend of Hill House, that was working with a little bit of a lower budget. Um, I, there weren't very many big name actors in it, even for the time. Probably nobody would really recognize most of the actors that were in it at this point. But uh, the screenplay was written by Richard Matheson. So kind of like The Exorcist, which was based on a book by William Peter Blatty, who also wrote the screenplay for The Exorcist film. So they're good ones to to do a side by side, which isn't really what we're doing today. But um, something I mean, surely people are familiar with both. Sure, if, yeah. if you're used to seeing horror, you know, The Exorcist. Yeah. And you can also tell, you know, people sometimes with The Exorcist, you hear like, well, this is the scariest movie ever. And if you are accustomed to things like like The Conjuring and some of our more modern horror films, you may not necessarily be frightened by The Exorcist, but you can, if you go back and compare it to its peers, like its uh, contemporaries, you'll see why people thought that. Why were people passing out in the theater? Why were people getting sick? And it's just because that was that was a, le- a leap forward. So, But we're going to talk about the inferior <laughs> Legend of Hell House today. Although, uh, I don't know. We'll see if we we'll see if we find it a good movie or not. I guess we'll talk about it. Well, so we both read the book, then we both watched the movie. I actually watched the movie first. Oh, okay, yeah, um, and that was actually kind of where we got the idea to do this because um, you know at my bookstore where we we're prepping for Halloween, we wanted to get more um, spooky books in. So I basically went and looked and was like, "What are the scariest books that people are you know perennially interested in at Halloween?" And Hell House was on there as one that's uh, kind of a great example of a haunted house uh, genre book. And as I was reading the back, it said this inspired the movie and I'd never heard of the movie. So I did a little bit of research on it and was like, oh, this might be a good, interesting one to do for a horror because it's fun to go off the beaten track sometimes. Sure. I think, so. Have you read, speaking of horror books, have you read The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson? I have, yeah. This, I mean, for people who maybe, I, I would assume that The Haunting of Hill House is more familiar to most people. Yeah, probably. At the very least, because of the, net, the success of the Netflix show, which is not hardly at all related to the book, but um, some of the character names are the same. That's about it. Yeah. Um, 
Similar vibe though, right? Monstrously huge house. Yeah. Uh, a team's gone in to investigate it. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of the broad strokes of, yeah. of the legend of Hill House. He Matheson had to be thinking about Shirley Jackson's book, I think. I think maybe so. I have to be honest though, I thought Hill House was a way superior book. Oh, me too. Um, me too. I actually don't really like the haunting of Hill House very much as a as a horror story. Um, I think it works pretty well as like a character, like a literary work. And a psychological crisis Yes. Study. And it just happens to be taking place in a house that may or may not be haunted. Yeah. Um, which is a great setting for that kind of thing. Yeah. So we've never talked about that before. I couldn't agree more. Like, I, I'm not trying to disparage Shirley Jackson's mm-hmm. book. The first read was a really interesting read. Yeah. Just when you look back on it in total, it's not mm-hmm. it's not nearly as scary as this. Sure. Yeah, my expectations were unmet because I assumed it was going to be a horror haunted house book. Mm-hmm. And it's really just kind of not that. And that's fine. It doesn't have to be that. But It's almost more of a, like a Victorian woman in crisis kind of thing. Like it throws yeah. back to the yellow wallpaper or something. But yeah, yeah. I know I'm taking this on a sidebar. It's just if you know the haunting of Hill House, the mm-hmm. book anyway, sure. you're going to know a lot of the beats of Hill that House. That one's been made into movies. And there's, I mean, there's a 1960 something haunting of Hill House. There's the haunting. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. And that one was kind of cartoonish and didn't really go well. And that one was originally going to be called The Haunting of Hill House. But the same year, which maybe it was 99 or somewhere. Yeah, it was around that big budget horror movie phase at the end of the 90s. So that same year, another movie called The House on Haunted Hill came out. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well, if we call it The Haunting of Hill House, nobody's going to know what movie they're going to see because they sound too similar. Um, so they just called it The Haunting, and it was probably still confusing. But um, I remember watching The Haunting, and it was one of those that kind of fell apart in the last act. <laughs> so, sure. Which is easy for horror films to do, which we can talk about some. But. For sure. So well, before we dive into this proper, yeah. I want to give a proper warning sure. for our conscientious Christian audience, mm-hmm. who I assume is the bulk of our audience. Uh, the book, I'm going to start with the book. Sure. The book is like the third most sexually explicit book I've ever read. Yeah. And that's not a huge list, you know, like sure. I'm not, I'm not reading a lot of erotica, Yeah, but it's pretty aggressive with the sexuality. I mean, yeah. sexuality is so much at the heart of this story. Yeah, They really lean into it in the book. Yeah. And I think in a way that I was surprised for a 1973 film. The movie too. Yeah, it's it's more of a it's more of a subtext in the movie, but it's really there. An adult will definitely understand what they're talking about. Um, the movie's not very graphic, um, but uh, there is there is one scene where there's some uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's semi nudity, I guess. They they we were talking about this right before we started, but they obviously were doing everything they could to get as close to nudity as possible without having it. So um, there's a disrobed female who is silhouetted, basically, is kind of the gist of it. Um, so that's the that's the visual issue there. Yeah. So Jared and I have a rule that we don't review nudity on this. Like mm-hmm. uh, some people are going to see that as an arbitrary double standard. But like there's some things you can't fake and sure. being inappropriately nude is something you can't fake in the way yeah. you can fake a murder yeah. for, for movie. And so we have stayed away from this. And I didn't catch this, uh, but apparently the silhouette's pretty like you said, it's right up to the line where uh, I think like a, a woman's breast is pretty much thrown in relief. And so, you know, wh- where it comes to the movies that we find acceptable, we've probably walked right up to like. Yeah, that's about the edge, I'd say. About the edge of it. And there's like at one point there's a woman making sex noises. Uh, another woman drops her blouse. You see her from the back. Mm-hmm. But she's clearly sexually propositioning a guy. Yeah. And then later, same woman 
comes and aggressively does it again. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of sexual content here. And if your conscience can't handle that, I would just say stay away from the movie. Yeah. It's not worth it to, I mean, that we're going to talk about that. We think there's a lot of, of, uh, value that can be extracted from horror films generally, but this one also in particular, but it's really not worth it if it's going to cause you problems. Um, I will say it, it, it I don't know if this will be helpful or not, but the the sexuality in this movie is and the book as well is really put in a, a horror context. Um, it's not designed to elicit a, a sexual response from its viewer. And so in that sense, I would not consider it pornographic in mm-hmm. nature, but it is still very shocking. And, you know, it's a horror it's a, it's a horror situation, so um, shock is a component of that, although it can certainly be over-relied upon, which we'll hopefully talk about someday, too. So, all right. Well, do you want to give um, do you want to give the listeners sort of a broad sketch? <laughs> easy for me to say. Yeah. <laughs> a, a broad sketch of kind of the plot of sure. the story? Sure. The plot is pretty simple. Um, we ha- What we have is a, a really great classic haunted house premise, which is that there's a man, a very wealthy man, who's dying of old age. Um, who hires uh, our protagonist, Lionel Barrett, Dr. Scientist, um, (laughs) to go into a place and investigate using scientific means uh, if a soul survives beyond death. He's trying to do the very best he can to determine this because he's obviously afraid of dying and he's trying to throw his money at the problem. At the same time, he's also engaged the services of a medium, um, who like a spiritualist, um, who a sort of a, what we would consider a psychic, somebody who can who says that they can speak to the dead and deal with ghosts and things like that. And he has also brought in one survivor from a previous um, effort to to do some scientific research as well, who was al- also a medium. Um, and so uh, there's been two previous excursions to the house. One of them was shortly after the the incidents, which kind of left it an empty husk where everyone was you know found dead and whatnot. Um, and then the the second one was a scientific expedition several years later. Everyone died except for one man, and he's brought in um, for this one as well. So there's there's actually four characters going to the house: um, Doctor Scientist and his wife, Mrs. Doctor Scientist. And uh, two mediums. One of them is a young, idealistic female, and the other one is sort of a jaded. Um, I don't really know how to describe. That. He's definitely a jaded, cynical. Um, he was my favorite character. Well, he's a guy who survived, yeah. and so like he's there saying, you know, he's basically I'm not doing anything except here to collect a check. Yeah, because yeah. he he holds the house. I don't want to say respect, but like he really feels there's a power source there that can hurt people. Yeah. He's not going anywhere near it. He just wants to get the check and get out of there. He, his his opinion is that you can survive. He basically said, in fact, there's a line of dialogue where he says, it will tolerate guests, but if you try to fight the house, it will kill you. Um, and so he's prepared to spend his week there. They got to be. They have one week to determine um, what they can do. Um, all the characters have really clear motivations. Um, they're more clear in the book than they are in the movie. But it's you, you can tell why they're there. For instance, our, our survivor. You're like, why is this guy here? He's already been through this. Why would he go through it again? Well, he wants hundred thousand dollars, which in 1973 money is pretty significant. I mean, it's um, pretty significant. Twenty nineteen. Yeah, it's sure. super substantial before inflation yeah. ate it. Yeah, before the. You know, we went off the gold standard actually right around that time. Yeah, so, thank you, Phil. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, he, he wants his money. He wants to retire and go be a janitor somewhere far away from any spiritual stuff. Um, and uh, then there's um, uh, 
uh, Florence, our medium, who is there. She's an idealist, like I mentioned before. She wants to like help the souls of the house. Go kind of new agey. Very new agey in the book. She's much more of a religious person in the book, although there's a lot of references to God from her character in the movie. In the book, it's revealed that she's actually a pastor of like a universal. I don't know exactly what they refer to him as spiritualists. And so I'm not sure if that was a specific denomination or cult or what that was. But um, that might have been something that was more common knowledge in the 70s. Um, But she's definitely there to be nice to the ghosts and try to help them rest. Um, Dr. Dr. Barrett um, is there because he wants his money, but also because he's looking for validation for his theory, which is basically that psychic phenomenon are scientific phenomenon that we have not figured out how to measure yet. So he just he's not as he's not as a, uh, a skeptic in the sense that he refuses to believe in the unseen forces. He just does not believe that they're personal in nature. They're all just sort of like remnants of energies and things like that. So Yeah, he's a materialist, but sort of a, a big tent materialist. Yeah. Like everything's not been mapped yet. We don't know the whole layout of the natural world. Yeah, which is a nice twist sure. to have. Rather than somebody who's just like, nah, there's nothing going on. It's just you're just hearing the house settle or whatever. Well, you know, this movie is of a time. It's clearly mm-hmm. of a particular time. But it also makes me think there you know the the ghost hunter phenomenon, mm-hmm. the the television series and uh, I guess industry at this point yeah. harkens back to a time in the early to mid 20th century where there was these psychical research institutions, a yeah. lot of them in Britain. And this is kind of he's that guy. He's yeah. into psychical research and he's trying to he's trying to be the Thomas Edison mm-hmm. or uh, Louis Pasteur of psychical research. He's, he's sort of like a not funny version of Egon. From, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, from Ghostbusters, where it's like. Um, there's a recognition that there's something going on, but there is also like, if we can, if we can harness a certain kind of technology or if we can find a way to measure this, um, then we will understand it better. And then we can sort of add it to our, our scientific catalog of data basically. So, um, the other characters are not as clear on that. And then Dr. Dr. Barrett's wife is also there with him who has been his assistant in the past. Um, he was reluctant to bring her this time, which is one of our first kind of tone indicators of like, he's gone to investigate this kind of thing before and she's always gone. And this time he says, I don't really want you to go this time. Um, something about this is just kind of feeling a little more serious. They refer to it as the Mount Everest of haunted houses. And she's kind of a cipher. Like you kind of get that she, she's not the dominant personality in the relationship. Mm -hmm. He is. And she's, she's along for the ride, which all that's going to change. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the basic plot. Well, should we talk about Velasco? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So so we have our premise, I guess, is is the deal. So what they find out is that the the haunted house was previously owned by um, a illegitimate son of um, arms dealer, manufacturer, I think, uh, which doesn't really come up much. I think there's like one reference to, well, maybe he feels guilty because of the deaths of people. And they're like, nah, that's probably not it. So that's kind of dismissed out of hand. But he's supposed Um, to be like the son of one of the classic robber barons, like a Vanderbilt. Yeah, he's uh, like a major... Old money type New England. This takes place in Maine, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and uh, so he's he's up there. He's built his house, um, and he is a horrible, evil person. He's very much a satanic type character. Um, he himself does not indulge in very much uh, wickedness, but basically he starts. He he builds his house, and he becomes the flavor of the month. And so he invites people to come over. They come to all his wild parties. He um, tempts them with drugs and just alcohol at first, which is fairly mild relative to what goes on later. 
Um, people eventually start staying for several days at a time, several weeks at a time. Um, and he encourages them to indulge in any kind of lust that they want. No rules, uh, just sort of like a, what a Christian would describe as sort of like hell on earth, um, where it's just very hedonistic. Yeah. Do whatever you want. And it, and of course it devolves into the worst kind of unmentionable evils that go on. It literally kills the guests. Yes. The guests will eventually die of this. Some people were there for years at a time, um, barely human, not even wearing clothes because all the servants have left or been killed off. Or joined in. The book says the yeah. book's like, yeah, then the servants jumped in. Yeah. And- um, they're, they're cannibalistic because there's no food in the house. Um, and then some relatives eventually force entry on the house and find that. I think it was 26 people were dead in there. Alaska is nowhere to be found. And um, he's, he's disappeared. And so, of course, the house was boarded up. People have gone in since then, and it's obviously a haunted house. There's obviously supernatural stuff going on. And and the theory that the team has is that there's layered haunting. So there's a lot yeah, of different ghosts. Dead people, yeah, have, have stayed on, and they're trying to, they're trying to solve it. Um, at one point, Florence Tanner even says, like, I'll stay here for a whole year and work on helping all these people find their rest. Um, and they're only supposed to be there. This takes place right before Christmas, I think the very last day. Of the um, of the way the interesting way that the film was like the the time sequence of it was interesting. Um, they do the same thing in the book where there's like instead of having chapter names, it'll say like December twenty third, ten forty five p.m. and then what happens in that scene. Um, so they're there for about seven days, and the last day is Christmas Day. So, mm. so Velasco specifically is this figure who has kind of created a self-contained Sodom and Gomorrah on the grounds of the Biltmore. Yeah. But I just want to emphasize, because the book does twice, and I think it sets up some of the stuff that you want to talk about, he's not a participant. He is sort of lurking in the shadows, observing, moving among. So, like, he's the catalyst and the creator of all this uh, dehumanizing revelry, but he's not indulging personally. And so provides the means to, you know, get people out of out of their ability to make good decisions. He provides us a, a shelter for them to be a able push to do all toward these things. Yeah. And an encouragement towards that. Yeah. And I'm sure he he did what, you know, there talks about how he they would bring in wild animals and feed the feed people to them and mm-hmm. just things like that. So, you know, all those things are things that, you know, you need money and resources to do. And that's his that was his role was do whatever you want. I'll make it possible for you to do anything that you want to do and, yeah. and then push them towards those, those negative evil things. Yeah. So, so I think the last time we walked through a genre, we kind of salted in genre analysis with the film review. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind us doing that again, I just yeah. kind of like to roll the ball over and say, what do you think makes a horror movie a horror movie? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a timely question because you've seen these movies you know, we're recording in 2019. You've mm-hmm. seen Jordan Peele's Get Out, mm-hmm. Hereditary, the Haunting of Hill House series. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got this term where now we're talking about elevated horror mm-hmm. as a way to distinguish certain... Well, there's a. I don't think there's a genre out there that has more subgenres than horror. Yeah, but this one is like, oh, there's quality. You know, elevated mm-hmm. horror is supposed to be like, this is a quality horror movie. This yeah. isn't the Drek you're thinking of. Yeah, this is you not know. a slasher film. This is not torture. Like, yeah, this based. is not like a Saw movie or something. Yeah. This is got. There's a story that also is like it, its context is horrifying, but mm-hmm. it's really story first. Um, well, I think now I'm a guy who like I want to stretch the horror genre pretty far. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I listened to a podcast today where somebody was trying to invent a new genre to say this is a terror movie, not a horror movie. I'm going to reject that. Well, that's that's what is he? I would have to know what they meant by that. Like, that's well, a confusing I, distinction. I read it as I don't want to acknowledge I like horror movies sometimes. 
So I'm going to come up with a new genre. And I think there's another version of this where they're like, that's not a horror movie. That's a thriller. Oh, yeah. And a you're like, it's movie. Or, yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah, man, that's a horror movie. You can just yeah. say it. It's, mm-hmm. you know, there's no shame. Uh, yeah. Well, for some people, I guess there is. Now, you, uh, quick plug for your other thing, but you guys do Saw Something Scary, right? Yeah, so uh, I have a different podcast yeah. that's not aimed at a faith-based community primarily. Mm-hmm. We just review horror movies yeah. for the for genre fans. So you are you are pretty well steeped in into that world of knowing, you know, you watch probably more horror movies than me, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, I probably watch more in that genre than any other genre. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've watched a lot of movies. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I don't know if I'm an expert, but I spend a lot of time there. Well... I'm curious what you think it is that makes, because I'm sure you've seen a lot of really bad ones. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen, and there's a ton of bad ones. I mean, horror movies are one of those that I think that uh, a good one makes it look easy to make. And so when you watch some of them, I mean, some of the great B movies of old that are just like so bad they're good kind of movies are horror films because they're relatively low budget. They make a lot of money. Even if they don't like blow it out and make, you know, Avengers money, they're still they're still well making their budget back and, and then some. So and it's kind profitable. of a go to for studios. Horror is remarkably bankable in that you can make them cheap and you tend if you if you really make anything of quality whatsoever. Yeah. You're gonna, not even then. <laughs> yeah. You're going to make your money back. So yeah. like you like A24 is a studio that's kind of come up in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. They did The Witch. They made The Witch for cheap. It made a ton of money and it started fueling things like Lady Bird and these other movies. Yeah. You want to make. Yeah. Actually, Bloomhouse. Bloomhouse is one I was going to bring up. Yeah. They that's their thing, yeah. man. Yeah. That's what – and I don't know what their budgets are, but they're probably in the in the – $10, $10 million range, exactly. something yeah. like that. And they're making, I mean, even if you go and release it into a theater, it makes 35 or something. You've made your production budget. Everybody gets paid and gets, you know, gets to pay their bills. You've made back your marketing budget, whatever you spent on that. So yep. it's, it's sort of like the Roger Corman school, except like better than his movies, where it's like, we think business first and then we make, you know, we make movies that will fit the profit and Bloomhouse that I'm so glad you caught up to Corman because Corman kind of knew he was making it for a certain crowd and a certain mm-hmm. audience, particularly the drive-ins yeah. Bloomhouse, I think is like, we'll take a shotgun approach and like mm-hmm. three of these things are going to land really well. Yeah. So we made 10, three landed, but they paid for everything else. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so here's my theory. I'm just going to roll it over to you. It's mm-hmm. going to sound simplistic, but I kind of think it's a simple formula. I think a horror movie is, or really horror in any genre, including scripture, mm-hmm. is designed to provoke a visceral sense of fear, not so much like existential angst mm-hmm. or fear about the future, but a fear that is viscerally felt that is rooted in a sense of danger to yourself, like an immediate danger to me. Okay. There's a ghost after me. There's a guy with a chainsaw <laughs> after me. Uh, I think that's the heart of the horror. Like It's supposed to draw me into a fictional story that I knew going in as a fictional story, mm-hmm. but I nonetheless experienced this sense of I might be in danger. Okay. And I think that's where... I think that's where you see good horror versus bad horror too, mm-hmm. because you can do that in better or cheaper ways. Yeah. So I would assume you're not a fan of jump scares. No, not well. They have to be earned. It's yeah. kind of my theory on them. Like, there's a few that I think are great, but if a movie just does jump scares all the time, that's just all that does is make me like clench my jaw for two hours and then wish I'd done something else. Pretty much. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, so I'm with you, and I, there are some jump scares. There's one in the Haunting of Hill House that I think is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where I'm like, it is. It's making me feel like I'm in danger, but it's because I felt like I saw something thrown at my face. Yeah. 
and there's like a musical sting yeah and just like a sudden you know some foley effect that's just like designed to assault the ears and I don't know. They're just if they if they're overly relied upon, it can really wreck a horror film, in my opinion. I know some people like that, but yeah. yeah. Now on the other side of that, done better. A movie like The Exorcist, I think, really does frighten me in a different way because I believe demons possess people. Sure. Yeah. If you're a religious person, The Exorcist is scary in a different way than it is to because people who are non-religious, like people who are probably even atheistic, will find that movie to be pretty nerve-wracking, at least because. Well, there's there's reasons other than the premise, but it's like this is a normal family. This is a normal person and this is a horrible thing happening to them. There's some shock value in there, too. Some of the stuff that they do in the movie is very shocking initially, but um, but it's just sort of like I can relate to these people. And so I can see myself like Ooh, this would be you know, I would be horrified if if something like this ever befell me, um, even if it was mental illness, which a lot of people would probably pass it off as that. Sure. So. Well, and, and specifically with The Exorcist. In a, in a way that you're probably going to laugh about, if you remember those 90s Japanese horror remakes that American film industry did, like The Grudge and The Ring. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's sort of this idea that is... The lank-haired little girl horror mm-hmm. films, yeah. If evil can reach into my apartment building, mm-hmm. I don't have to go to a haunting house to sure. get into this, or it can reach into, in The Exorcist, a very upper-class family in Georgetown. Yeah. Then nice nobody's safe. You mm-hmm. know, I don't have to go to like the witch doctor. Sure. I can just wake up one day and my, my daughter's bed's floating. Like sure. alien or um, all those interesting environments, I think, is is often a component in horror films. But it's it's a different kind of fear to say, like, it can reach me. You know, yeah. There's something in my own closet or under my own bed or something like that. So then, I mean, you don't have to be guiding to me on this. What do you think about my theory that it's it's visceral fear that, that feels like a sense of danger to myself? I, I think I agree with that. I, I really can't come up with a particularly, like, fear. Like, the, the fact that it causes fear is pretty much what you think of with a horror film. Sure. Um, and... I I mean, the, I need to feel f- afraid for myself. If I feel afraid for characters, that's really just drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, any good story, sh- you should feel at least concerned for what's happening to the characters. If See, you don't, that, then it's a bad story. That's what I think is different between a horror movie and, say, like Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. I'm afraid for those guys. Yeah. I want them to do I don't well. I want them to die, sure. But it's not a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's it's a, there's a horrifying aspects to it, yeah. but um, it's not a horror. It doesn't it doesn't it's an, it would be unhelpful to say that's a horror film because right. there's some scary you know I don't want to get blown up. Well, you're, that's that's a war zone. It's 1944. That's not really that's so that's so distant that it's not really. Or even would, the idea of like if I were ever in war, that'd be awful. Or yeah. there's danger to me there. I mean, yes. I mean it's kind of like comedy. Mm-hmm. You you know you you have to have this sense of the surreal mm-hmm. and. It, you know, very quickly, like comedy can turn into terror. You sure. know, some of those things are similar, uh, but it, it's different for a war movie to turn into a horror movie. You yeah. need to add something. Oh, that's been done. <laughs> yeah, for sure, it's yeah. been done. Uh, often in video games too that yeah. I've enjoyed. So yeah, there's like a whole sub sub genre of like Nazi zombie B movies. And there was that Overlord movie that they did a couple of years ago. Which back. was like uh, Wolfenstein yeah. as a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, in my opinion, a great idea. <laughs> sure. I don't think, I don't know if it made me money, but I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. So. Well, you had brought some stuff to the table, uh, and you said that the fears that are built into a horror movie are yeah. death. That's always going to be there. Should be. Or something like that. Something maybe even like. In, the only other one that I can think that would maybe replace death is um, being permanently institutionalized. Because mm-hmm. there's maybe a few movies like that. But Get is, Out's kind of like that because an alien yeah. consciousness takes over your body, but you're left in there. Yeah. Um, 
So that kind of like imprisonment may replace death, but usually we're afraid somebody's going to die. And even that imprisonment stuff is playing on death. Like it's this state of being that we don't want to be in. It's almost like... Um, like slow death or like being buried alive sure. or something like that. Like you're stuck there. You just have to wait until you die. In the meantime, who knows what horrible things you'll have to watch or do or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I think death is, is going to be the number one for sure. And we have that in Hell House here, right? So it's built on the idea of like we need to figure out what happens after death. And if anything yeah. sinister mm-hmm. happens. And the characters are afraid after a while. They're afraid that they're going to die. Yeah. And they're afraid of dead things. You know, They're afraid of what the, the malevolent spirits are trying to do. Yeah. Uh, you also listed, I think, very helpfully, isolation, loneliness, being forgotten. Mm-hmm. And that sense of isolation and loneliness is Right at the heart of this movie, because the the, the the like Alfred Pennyworth figure drops him off yeah. at the gate, and he's like, "I'm not coming back till mm-hmm. Tuesday at five. Yeah. You know, See, good yeah. luck." Yeah. Now in the in the book, that's a little less pronounced because they have the people who bring him food like once a day. But they don't ever see him. Um, I think they see him like right at the end, maybe once. And it's real clear these servants are like dropping a basket of French rolls off, and yeah, they're out, speeding yeah. out of the drive. Because they they said uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of I don't remember the characters' names, but the ones from the Haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. where it's the the groundskeepers. Like I don't stay here after dark. Yep. Nobody's gonna hear you screaming up here because it's <laughs> six miles away. You know? Yeah. So they're they don't have as much of a character. They're just sort of like almost like a background piece in this. But they they're isolated. They're at this house. It's um, it's surrounded by this sort of ethereal fog. Um, it's cold. There's hazards nearby. I mean, there's this bog out front that they. Um, I don't know if the movie really does much with it. In the book, they almost fall into it a couple of times. Um, and uh, so they're they're stuck there by themselves for the duration. Um, they have a car. In the in the book, but in the movie, they're iso- they're left up there. They're dropped off, which I think is kind of a better yeah I'm better approach. Yeah. It works better. Uh, third criteria you listed was unknown and unseen, and that I mean that's the whole thing of the ghosts yeah. is some invisible entity intelligence. I mean, this is similar to demonic stuff. Yeah, some unseen intelligent being going to mess with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, violations of natural order or physical laws. Yeah, see that too. Um, so. I'm, I thought of these because I was trying to think of like what are the consistent ones that are across um, most horror films, and I'm thinking, okay, death is you know obviously we have regardless of what horror film you're watching, it's almost always going to involve someone trying to kill the characters we're supposed to like slasher movie, sci-fi horror, whatever it is they're trying to they're trying to kill them. Isolation and loneliness is usually a factor because if you're just running around in a crowded area. Um, most of the time that's not as scary as it is if you're in a cabin in the woods or if you're on a spaceship and there's only five of you alone on a dark and stormy night. Yeah. Or if you're, I mean, like the thing, they're an Arctic station up Mm -hmm. there. And, um, so isolation is a, is an important part of it. You have to feel like you can't depend on help. It's it's just down to you and your resources, the unknown and the unseen is another factor that we see a lot of, um, Monsters that don't hide enough can wreck a horror film. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, so they they need to be, and this is part of the reason why Predator One is awesome, and the Predator is horrible because in Predator One you see him, it, you don't even see the thing in its full. It's it's got to be like an hour and something into the movie before you actually see the creature. And your imagination point, is always scarier than yeah. what your eyes can take in. And so he and the characters within are afraid of the thing because they can't see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is based on a story written by a guy whose mom had an identical twin sister who hated him 
And so he would come home from school and be like, hey, mom, how was your day? And she'd be like, shut up, kid. Oh, my gosh. And so he had this kind of issue where he was worried about, like, what if the person I see isn't the person I think they are? Sure. And so he wrote this really cool science fiction story. Wow. And it was, it was called Who Goes There by John Campbell Jr. It's worth a read um, if anybody out there likes sci-fi stories. What a great story, man. Yeah. Well, how terrifying because it's the hardest of switches, right? Sure, yeah. My mom is the center of what I think of as love and provision and nourishment and – uh, care and then now it's this enemy who yeah, wants Sally it. who you know hates me, but uh, wow. yeah. So I mean, there's the unknown and the unseen. Like, what? Who is this? What is what is happening? And you know, an alien. You have the alien who hides in the pipe. Skitters. He's always around there somewhere. You might catch a glimpse of his tail flipping around a corner or whatever, but um, you don't see him until the end. Um, and then there's in this in this movie, you really never see any ghosts. They don't do any ghost effects in this movie. There's some Im- implied things. There's some moving doors and stuff. There's a mean cat. There is a mean cat. Um, and then there's one sort of jump scare dead body situation. But it's not a ghost. It's just a corpse. It's chained to a wall, it's sitting there being chained to a wall. It's not doing anything. So they're they're hidden. Yeah, they're they're there somewhere. There's a malevolence, and it could be watching. It could be anywhere. You don't know. Yeah. So violations of natural order and physical laws. Ghosts can do stuff we can't. Yeah. Or, um, I mean, again, I come back to the thing where there's like the guy's head falls off and turns into a spider monster and runs off. Um, that's a horrifying thing. There's. Uh, I don't know. The aliens don't play by our rules. We lock the door or the ghosts can just come in through the walls. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really great fear, like fear inducing sequences in the book version of the haunting of Hill house, where there's a ghost apparently who goes down the hall beating on all the doors at night. And she just does a great job of making that terrifying. And you're like, is it just going to slide through the door? Is it going to, what's it going to do? I mean, you know, there's no telling. And so that, that fear of like, well, it's a ghost. It doesn't really necessarily have to stay outside if the door is locked. Sure. Um, there's a fear there. And then of course we're afraid of misery coming upon characters that remind us of ourselves, mm-hmm. not a narcissistic like way. It plays on relational way. Yeah. We don't, if I, if this is part of the reason why if your characters are morons too much, then the movie is less frightening because we're like, I would never be, I would never be in this situation. There's no way. Um, that's why slasher movies a lot of times aren't really that scary to me. Some of the good ones are, like Halloween, the original one, because she's sort of normal. But, like, Friday the 13th is not to me. It's it's kind of fun to watch, but it's not really a scary movie because I'm not going to fall into the trap that they fell into, where it's like a bunch of teenagers who go and they're not doing their jobs and they're screwing around instead of doing what they're supposed to be doing and then they get picked off. So... There's if the characters aren't aren't which this I'm getting a little ahead of us like because um, we want to talk about what kind of things ruin a horror film too but misery befalling characters that are relatable is something that causes us nervousness so. two points off of that so one just to kind of agree with you that's why slashers don't often work for me either mm-hmm. uh, I know that you like me are Second Amendment Americans sure. and so there's so many I'm not trying to sound like a uh, Billy Bad Boy, but sure. like a lot of this stuff, I'm just going to get a pistol, yeah. and that guy's no longer scary. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm better armed than he is. I've uh, actually seen some really funny sketches where it's like, what would happen if if a you know a serial killer broke into this guy's house or something? And it's like two two young adult males, and they they're going upstairs, and somebody flips the lights off, and they flip the lights on. There's this long dark hallway. It's a good spooky shot, and um and then when they flip the lights on, there's like a ghost guy. It looks like the guy from Scream. Uh-huh. And one of them just, like, screams and hits him. Yeah. The guy falls down, and then he picks up, like, a TV and just bludgeons him with it. And one guy runs off and comes back with a pistol and shoots him, like, 12 times. And 
they're just sitting there like holding their chest. It's a really funny sequence, but it's like, yeah, that's kind of horrifying, but I'm with you. Like I, I would probably stand and fight most things because my mind's not going to go to like, oh, this is a supernatural monster. Yeah. It's just an intruder. And I would. It's not ideal. I'm yeah. not saying I'm going to stare that down with icy calmness, yeah, but like, like I know scare. what I have to do. Sure. Yeah. The other thing under this is a subset of mystery befalling a character. I do think, and maybe this is not a subset, you, you be the judge, but there's this idea of like something could happen to us that changes us profoundly in a way we didn't determine. So like mm-hmm. a ghost isn't really there, but a demon turns me into something that I'm not willing to be. Uh, I think the heart of alien, right? It puts the chest burster in you. Yeah, like you yeah. become a breeding ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really in this movie with Mrs. Dr. Scientist. Mm-hmm. She's going to go from a very quiet, reserved academics wife mm-hmm. to sort of a brazen harlot. Yeah. And it wasn't something she signed up for. Yeah. She's obviously horrified by the change as she noted, as she like perceives it. Happening. Yeah. So. so again, it may be under that misery thing, but this sense of danger to myself and this is less of a physical thing, but like I may become someone I didn't agree to become. Yeah. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, how do you want to go from here? We want to just talk about like, um, the way that the characters in the movie start changing. Sure. So once you take us off on that, I guess really the, they get in the house and then they have a session where the new agey mm-hmm. medium yeah. starts manifesting some stuff. Yeah. So she wants to call, she calls it a sitting, which I guess is probably a term. If you're a medium, you, you may know that term. I don't know. But he wants to, of course, Dr. Dr. Barrett wants to make all this stuff scientific as possible. But they kind of do an off-the-cuff one where she's like, I'd like to try a sitting tonight. So I'm going to try to get in contact with the spirits. So she does. And um, she manifests um, a different voice, which in the movie they use a different voice. She's dubbed or, or they did some kind of... Layered the audio. Yeah, so. they did something to make it a different voice. Um, and uh, it's a male who speaks to them initially and is just like, get out of here. I don't want to hurt you, but I'll have to if you don't leave. Um, and, uh, then there's some physical manifestations where some stuff shakes and moves around. Nothing particularly violent at this point. Just like, Oh, obviously there's a power here. This is a shocking thing to them because in, apparently there's a distinction made, at least in the world of the book or the movie, either one between a physical medium, which our other character is, I can't remember his name. Yeah, he's. I mean, ben, he's ben in the Fisher. book. He's like a he's like a wonder boy yeah, from back Fisher. in the day. Uh, his name is Benjamin Franklin Fisher. That's right. Well done. Um, and uh, he supposedly is a physical medium. So when he would interact with the spirit world, the then the ghosts and whatever things he was dealing with could could like move things or, or from his things. body generate yeah. ectoplasm. That yeah. does he stuff. would do auto writing, and he would. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what all that entails. They don't go into a huge amount of detail, and I'm not well-versed on the mythology of that stuff to know. But she supposedly is just a mental medium, so she can understand them and hear them. And I guess she's supposed to be able to speak for them, but that seems to be as far as she thinks she can go. But uh, So this is a little bit frightening to her and to everyone else. Well, again, like, it's a change she didn't sign up for. Right? Yeah, and um, so they're... This also begins to sow some suspicion between the characters, which adds to the isolation factor as well, because people are like, is Ben Fisher doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, do, is she being manipulated against her will? Is what you know? Are these people in control? And then, of course, the mediums are thinking, well, is this scientist ever is he ever going to trust us? Are we ever going to be able to uh, be let off our leash so we can really explore the supernatural of this? Um, so that, that is sort of the first supernatural thing that happens. Um, and, uh, 
And it kind of goes, her character, I guess we could probably maybe take it one character at a time. So with Florence Tanner, she is in the movie version, a very fresh-faced, optimistic, naive, um, very young. She's much younger than her book counterpart. Mm -hmm. Um, She looks to be about 20 or something in the the movie. And um, so she, uh, she is convinced pretty much right away that there's a ghost of... Daniel Belasco, which is um, Emmerich Belasco. Emmerich Belasco's son. So Emmerich's the bad guy. Yeah. Daniel is more of a victim of Emmerich. Yeah. He's he's a, about her age. I guess he's about twenty or so. Um, he is apparently one of the people who was who died um, under the Belasco reign of terror, and. Um, so she's convinced that his ghost is the primary haunting entity, and he's the one causing all the problems. But he feels like he can't leave because of reasons that he's unclear about to her, and uh, that will become that will be revealed later. So at one point, as as addressing this, she tries to they find his body. Yes, eventually they do, and bury it. And she's like, "Cool, you can go now." And he's like, "Nope, he's got to hang around." Yeah. So she's confused by this, of course. And in the movie, uh, this is a little less clear in the movie than it was. And it's, I'm sure it's just so that they could, you know, keep it above an R rating. But in the um, in the book version, it's much more clear that the ghost is trying to influence her in such a way that she will permit the ghost to manifest physically and to have sexual relations with her in order to move on to the afterlife, which is super weird. It, yeah, I mean. Uh, it's one of those things where, like, if you hadn't been stuck in a haunted house for several days with reality being, like, really distorted, you'd be like, of course not. That's absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from the outside looking in as a viewer, we're like, why would you even think that would work? She but, frames it. And again, she has to be a really naive character, which yeah. means making her a younger person is probably helpful. It was a good call, I think. Yeah. But she says, you need the love that you were denied in life. Yeah. And I guess that means having sex. Sure. So you can do that and go. Well, they 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 kind of have a relationship. Like mm-hmm. she speaks to him. He has visited her several times throughout the movie, usually with some eerie thing, you know, doors opening by themselves. Also she more pronounced in the book. Like yeah. they. They have a they have a relationship, yeah. not not implying anything, but like yeah. they have communicated multiple sure. times. So he has basically pulled the sad boyfriend routine, mm-hmm. where he's like, "If you really love me, you'll do this for me." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she eventually, after being nagged, um, succumbs to this. Dude, you just made me realize. This is long before the term ever came, but he's an incel. She thinks he's an incel. He's an involuntary <laughs> celibate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess that's true. He didn't get, I don't know, He. I guess he didn't get to grow up and mature and have a wife and family of his own. Yeah. So she thinks that that's what he needs. Um, so she allows this to happen. Turns out, of course, this was a, this was a heinous deception on the part of Emmerich Belasco, that Daniel Belasco's ghost, if he's there at all, was not the one communicating with her. Um, and so she is defiled by this. Um, and... Uh, not particularly graphically done in the movie. Um, it was more of an implication, and she explains it. She's injured. Uh, she gets all scratched up and beat up uh, in the process. Bitten, I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, she basically decides that she's going to leave the house at that point. But she's also possessed, I guess, by some yeah. other intelligence. Periodically, something comes out where, like, Ben Fisher's trying to talk to her, and then another voice pops up and is mean to him, basically. Yeah. And, um, the only thing that keeps her from leaving is uh, when Dr. Barrett says that he's going to power up his Ghostbuster machine and shut the whole thing down by, yeah. like, negating their existence. But again, with this position, like, at one point, she snaps into whatever the other thing is and tries to take the machine down, you know? Yeah. So yeah. she becomes a much more volatile. She went from, like, naive to just volatile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, which is not shocking. Uh, I mean, she doesn't have enough experience to be particularly 
rational about things um, in the the way her character is written anyway. So that kind of brings us, that might be a good place to bring up some of these, um, some of these truths that we can mine out of Hill House. Yeah. The first one that I have is that there's a serious risk attempting to contact the supernatural outside of the prescribed means, which is limited exclusively to prayer to the triune God. Um, attempting to serve as a medium between the living and the dead is almost always fake. And whenever we do see it, which there's one example in the Bible of it, it's not good. It's to be avoided. Yeah. Um, and that this, this could probably go without saying on this, you know, this is a faith-based channel, obviously. And so most people here are probably not calling up Miss Cleo to get their tarot cards done. But um she basically takes them at face value. When you contact, when you try to open up your mind to contact the spirit world, you should not be shocked that spirits may lie. Sure. And so um, she doesn't, that never occurs to her, apparently. And everybody else in the house is like, ah, you don't really know if it's him, but she just doesn't buy it. She's very sure, which brings me to another point. There is serious risk in elevating your feelings as a standard for truth, because that's kind of how she determines. No, it really is him. I just know it. I just feel it in my bones. Um, and she's just played like a fiddle, unfortunately. As well, and you're getting at something that I think is deeply biblical. Like I've said this from the pulpit before. Scripture never approaches the supernatural and says stay away as a materialist. Like, oh, it's all bunk. Yeah, sure. Uh, scripture owns that there is some bunk. Sure. But Scripture's basically saying, yeah, yeah, you could hook up with something that you would be destroyed by. Yeah. That's why you should stay away. It dishonors the Lord and it can destroy you. That's definitely not where we're supposed to be engaging. I mean, this is kind of like the, um, I mean, you don't hear about it as much anymore, but when I was like a teenager, there was a really big thing about spiritual warfare. And I think it was as a result of a couple of fiction books written um, at the time, like This Present Darkness mm -hmm. and stuff. And, uh, Shout out Frank Peretti. Yeah, um, which I don't think he intended to cause any problems with it, but um, he was just trying to write an interesting adventure story from the perspective of angels and demons. And so people began to think like, oh, well, you know, we can engage in this and this is like, Bind this is our fight. Them. And it's just not, it's just not our fight. Um, to that point, and I don't want to stay here forever, but like the old Roman ritual of exorcism mm -hmm. and a Protestants have picked up a lot of this. They make it a confrontation between the exorcist and the demonic entity. Yeah. And that has always sounded like that story of the sons of Sceva in Acts. Yeah. Where this has never been about my ability to overcome mm -hmm. a fallen angel. Mm -hmm. I know who wins that battle. Yeah, All right. I can do is go to Jesus and be just be smart about it and say, Jesus, they're afraid of you. Mm -hmm. They're doing things counter to your will. Will you please do whatever? Because they don't have to be afraid of Jeff Wright. They have to be, a, or a priest. Yeah, sure. They have to be afraid of the reigning sovereign of the cosmos. Yeah, the only people in the Bible who we saw that were not Christ casting out demons were people that were commissioned to do mm -hmm. that specific task, among others. And so, you know, it says like authority was given to them to cast out demons. And so, you know, when they walk up there, demons know that, you know, and there's not a lot of accounts of the, the, that happening. There's a few in Acts, but like when Jesus sends out his 70, um, like in Mark, he sends out the 70 guys to go and witness to people, but also they can, they can heal and they're given some abilities as well. And it's, but it's because of Christ's authority. And that even with the sons of Sceva, they even say, like, we know we know Jesus, but who are you guys? Mm -hmm. You know, and they just throw him out of the building. So. They even acknowledge Paul. Yeah. yeah but Paul's true. one of these authorized yeah. guys. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think our Roman neighbors would say, no, no, we're authorized by, sure. you know, lineage and whatnot. What I'm saying is the idea that you're framing it is me versus the demon. Like, make the demon say my name or say its name and submit to these commands. You know, don't do that. If you run into someone who's authentically demon-possessed, if you can safely in their presence pray to Jesus, just pray to Jesus. Yeah. You know, that battle's already won. We know how that sure. one went. So 
Uh, I mean, and I, I've heard that there was before the exorcist came out um, because of, you know, modern psychology, they had kind of given up on the idea like Catholics did not do exorcisms mm-hmm. very much. And then after the exorcist came out, because one of the plot points is that they take her to the doctor, which is some of the scary stuff in it, really, like where they're doing all the tests and things. And um, and then she goes, she finally goes to a priest who's like, ah, it's, you know, you should just go to a doctor. Yeah. We don't really do that anymore. Nobody knows what they're doing. No, nobody's done that in years. And so it's like two guys who kind of like they have to dust off some old tomes and look mm-hmm. up how to do it sort of. And, um, and then there's like one guy who's like a nemesis of the demon or whatever. And so uh, after the movie, apparently there was a, a huge jump in people calling the Catholic Church to ask for help with exorcisms. Because the choice was between like years and years of psychopharmacology and institutionalization and maybe no cure at all, because sometimes mental illness can't just be relieved that way. Or for a week, we have to listen to them cuss out Jesus and do horrible, weird stuff, and then they're fine. And people thought maybe that that would be worth doing. So Yeah, and maybe you would even want to grant that some of these people are probably getting a better category correction. You know yeah, I mean? maybe so. In recent years, the Catholic Church has come out and said that we're doing more exorcisms than ever. Mm. And that makes sense to me in that, you know, you and I agree there are demons. Sure. It's in their their toolbox to possess people. Mm-hmm. But we're living in a more secular age. Mm-hmm. And so the more people who are like, no, the supernatural, the supernatural doesn't exist. Yeah. It makes sense to me that that's pretty good prey for the supernatural. Yeah. It's easier to sneak up on them if they don't know you're coming. Sure. And so, I, I mean, I'm not going to legitimize everything that's in the name of exorcism, but it's on the table. Sure. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> and your point about, you know, trying to commune with the, the supernatural outside the bounds of Christ is so important. I think one of the things I'm seeing pastorally is that people are using not just New Age methodology, but uh, mind-altering drugs to try to connect with these beings on a different plane. Now, scientific age is going to say they, in string theory, whatever, they, they exist in a different whatever. We're going to be like, yeah, actually, the Bible tells us about people like that. They would masquerade as something more palatable. You're going to run into demons. Yeah. And it's sure. going to be awful. Or whatever. I mean, there may be even – I'm not – prepared to rule out the existence of supernatural beings that are not in the, that are not listed in the Bible like because we kind of tend to think of it in like angel or demon um, well since Lewis was really kinds. open to that idea too yeah like there may be others that aren't really you know we just don't have any business with them so we don't know about them um, and I don't know I mean I was just reading the other day on Lorehaven the Lorehaven magazine about um, can a Christian writing a science fiction book include an alien, uh, like aliens in there? And yeah. so like, how would you do that? And one of the theories is like, well, the Bible doesn't necessarily, which I don't believe in aliens myself, Sure, but the Bible doesn't necessarily preclude the existence of aliens. You just have to understand that there's a few things that we do know, like Jesus came in the form of a man, therefore he died for the sins of mankind. And therefore, if there's aliens out there that are fallen, they're, they're like, they're outside of, of salvation. Or they're unfallen. Like, that's yeah, Lewis's idea that's in Lewis, the Space yeah. Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Like you know, the, the Martian, Malacandra. We're in, are, Earth is in spiritual quarantine. Yeah. Those people don't need contact with us because we're a threat to them because yeah. we're fallen. Uh, which is just really cool. Mm-hmm. That's a really great way to think about it. So, anyway, all that to, to say that there's really nothing outside of this, this realm that we need to be seeking out. Um, there's just nothing helpful there. And uh, apart from, like you said, seeking Christ, do that. Yes. But do that exclusively. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, with regard to like the use of mind altering drugs to accomplish 
religious ecstasy. I mean, that's that's as old as people. I mean, yeah. people we've been shamanism that stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, the oldest religions in the world have depended on. I mean, sometimes just something as mundane as alcohol or mushrooms. You know, there's there's references to how like the Oracle of Delphi was probably breathing in some kind of natural gas from like a like petroleum fumes under yeah. the you know. So like they're just getting high and and uh, seeing weird stuff. And this is just I mean it's just as old as people are. So yeah. you know that's to be avoided. Well, the other character that I, I think really goes a, a dramatic change, if you don't mind this moving, yeah. is the other female character mm-hmm. who moves from a very revert, reserved character mm-hmm. to someone who is now kind of wanton. Yeah. And you want to walk us through the arc there? Sure. So that, this character is a very um, retiring kind of. Uh, I don't want to say clingy because she does seem to be, she has a mind of her own. Um, she seems intelligent. She seems like a capable assistant, like in a scientific sense. Um, she doesn't, she kind of is, uh, she's very attached to her husband and really devoted to him. Like she yeah. says, I want to be with you in your triumph. Yeah. You because know? he believes this is the moment where he's finally be vindicated for mm-hmm. his, his assertions. Um, and uh, do- kind of like Dr. Montague from the house on Haunted Hill. I mean, uh, The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, I did it. I got confused. Darn you, 90s Hollywood. Yeah. Um, she wants to be there. She wants to to witness all this. And um, there's more about her character background in the book. But in the movie version, she is uh, she begins to show some, some troubled signs when she's sort of – it's apparent that she's been drinking a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, in the book, they talk about how she was cautioned away from that because there's no reason if there's weird stuff like this going on. Because at this point, everybody acknowledges that there's supernatural or some kind of dangerous energy in the house. Um, nobody's really agreeing on the source of it. But you don't what you don't want to do is be bereft of your senses in any sense. So you don't want to be I mean, it's it's bad enough to have to sleep in there, but you don't want to be drunk. You don't want to be intoxicated. Um, in the book version, the, the alcohol she finds to drink is like half absinthe, so it's like a hallucinogen as well. And well, and the doctor scientist, her husband says, a known aphrodisiac. Oh yeah. So like the supernatural things that are happening to her are also fueled by these very chemical, chemical things. Yeah. yeah. So um, so she is intrigued by the the house's uh, disturbing history in a sexual sense. Um, and the, the malevolent entities in the house lean into that and kind of put those things in front of her whenever they can so that she feels like she is um, more interested in that than she really is. So that makes sense. Like it's almost like she's being uh, told a lie um, about herself that she's kind of embracing or she, she feels like she's embracing it, even though she's really trying to resist it more than she realizes. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, it's the 70s were post-60s, so maybe this is on there. I don't think the movie tries to portray her as repressed. Yeah. I but I think that. our modern sensibilities, guys from 2019 watching this are going to be like, oh, they're telling us she's sexually repressed and not fulfilled in her yeah. sexual expression, you know. Uh, yeah, that's – it seems clear in the movie that we that we watched that this is a bad thing happening to her. Yeah, I'm not trying to endorse yeah. the idea. I'm saying like if you come to the – if somebody watches this well, movie – Yeah, I get, what she's, I get what you're saying. Like I don't think that anybody watching this would walk away from it being like, oh, the, the ghost is trying to liberate her from mm-hmm. this repression. Like this is clearly something she does not want. Yes, this is why I want to talk about her because that's kind of something I appreciate about this movie. Yeah. Uh, well, let's finish up with her, and then we can kind of get into those elements. So she eventually uh, is – she comes on to Ben Fisher twice, um, uh, the second time more so. Uh, the first time is more of an implied 
hitting on him and they're kind of interrupted. The the second time she disrobes partially in front of him and he is I think that may be the incident where he slaps her and is like to kind of get her get back to herself. Yeah. yeah. Um and Well there's uh, a third, isn't there, where she comes down and like her husband sees her do it. Because uh, maybe he's looking from this balcony, and mm-hmm. she turns and like she comes back to her senses. That's and freaks the second out. time. Oh, that's the second time. Yeah. So it's all part of the like when she so. dropped her blouse. Okay, yeah, because that's when she's like horrified by it. Yeah, she feels like, oh no, you know, my my sins have found me out. Yeah, um, but it seems also pretty clear that there was a there was a supernatural influence at work, and then it suddenly was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and she comes to her senses fully, and so it's it's. It's implied that she's being led to do this by something. And, um, you know, in the book version of it, she is battling temptation, but there's also a supernatural something at work. Yeah. And um, so, you know, you get to read between the lines almost literally in the book version, but they did a pretty good job of porting that over to the movie, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, it's not written down for us, but they acted pretty well, I thought. So. And she survives. She's one of the the survivors. Yeah. Um, And... She really has a, a very, very understated, but there is a reconciliation with her husband before it's all over with because, uh, and again, this is more clear in the book because they explicitly stated that he's like, uh, I understand there's weird stuff going on. Something's wrong. Um, just stay with me for the rest of this thing. And um, she's kind of like, I'm not asking you to forgive me. Just don't hate me. And he's kind of like, I don't. Yeah. Um, so he's obviously pretty miffed initially, but she ends up helping him construct his machine. And so there's um, there's an understanding, I think. And that's that's a good thing, too, because mm-hmm. it seems like there's a strength there with like we refuse to be broken apart. Right. Which seems to be a part of what the, the evil is trying to do is to fracture the group. Yeah. And it's even again, sort of this is a throwback morally because like it required a version of repentance on her part. Yeah. It required forgiveness on his mm-hmm. and like they both did in the name of their marriage. I sure. mean, it, yeah. it's really traditional in mm-hmm. a weird way that way. So that kind of brings up one of the other things on the, on our list here, which is that um, resisting temptation prolongs and enriches our lives and resisting mm-hmm. temptation often makes a character highly resistant to death at the hands of supernatural in these stories. Yeah. Almost, uh, writers like to, in horror films, give people their just desserts. Um, it's one of the one of the, th- the chances they get to give somebody to give a monster or something a chance to kill someone without like a tragic element to it. So we, we see a lot where somebody will be a big jerk, or they'll get they'll get too drunk and they'll go outside to pee off the porch, and the monster stabs them, you know, or whatever. So you're kind of like, well, you shouldn't have gotten drunk. You know, there's some there's some part of us that's like that's justifiable because the person deserved it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, in this case, we have a character who is really trying hard to resist evil. And so she is uh, one of the survivors. And I'm wondering if uh, Matheson did that intentionally. Well, it is well known that, like, the girls who have sex in the slasher movies die. Yeah. The final girl is the chaste one. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that stuff is better or worse. But, like, that's why I am optimistic about the genre. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of the few places left that we're, we're very happy to be like, we should have a morality tale, please. Yeah. Give me a good guy. Give me a bad guy. Give me good consequences for good choices. Give me bad consequences mm-hmm. for bad. Like, yeah, show me a good guy doing good things. Yeah. yeah. In, in a morally subjective universe, it's one of the last places you can go and find mm-hmm. bold lines sure. that are moral. Yeah. Uh, also, you you have this in your notes that sin is progressively degrading. We've talked about that, but 
in this movie, Belasco is the modern, and I say modern as in like contemporary. Mm-hmm. Belasco looks like our current sexual ethic. Yeah. If you have an appetite for it, do it. Sure. You know, do it with whoever you feel like doing it with. Mm-hmm. And we'll just empower you to do that, pal. You mm-hmm. go live your most authentic life yeah. by indulging every appetite. But this movie says, yeah, that turns you into subhuman monsters. Yeah. And it's a wicked thing for Belasco to be encouraged. There's a there's an eternal punishment for it. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Case, I mean, they don't, they don't go so far as to say hell, but uh, in theory, all these ghosts are stuck here mm-hmm. in this prison, in this place where they died. And I'm I'm confident that they would like to leave. You know, they're stuck there. They don't want to want to be in this place. And they really kind of live through hell for part of it. And then and now the now their their souls are are trapped there, or at least Belasco's is and. So the progressively degrading nature, I think that was probably the, the single biggest thing that I took, at least from the book. It's not as pronounced in the movie because they didn't want to go into as much detail. But in the book, they go into a lot more detail about what all went on there before. And it goes from being minor iniquities to just being the worst kind of place. I mean, it, it, Sodom and Gomorrah would be a fair comparison to what it was. And kind of a Romans 1-3 progression, right? Yeah. You kind of reject traditional sexual norms, and by the time you're... At the end of it, yeah. you're doing the most debased things possible. Sure. And, I mean, and murder is commonplace and just, I mean, it's the death and every, everything follows with it that goes along. And so we see that in a smaller way with the Florence Tanner character where she is in, she indulges in this. Not in not in quite the enthusiastic way as the but she gives herself over. Yeah, yeah, she she falls to the temptation, and of course she's one of the ones. Spoiler alert: who does not survive? Um, so and she's not she doesn't come across as a wanton, uh, sexually liberated kind of person, but she falls to the temptation and is killed by it. Yeah, so. reaps a really yeah. destructive harvest. Well, so I anticipated some of this with you. But apart from a specific conversation, like we were reading this movie the same way. Uh, but when you sent your notes over, point uh, seven on your notes, I thought was incredibly uh, insightful. Belasco demonstrates the devil's character well. Mm-hmm. The architect of the house and what gone has gone on with it looks like Satan. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, he's the tempter. Right? He's the one lurking in the shadows. Now, I'm sure that in, you know, we know a limited amount about Belasco's personal history, but I'm sure he did evil things. There is a reference in the book to him sexually assaulting relatives and stuff like that. But um, he uh, he probably did bad deeds personally, but he enjoyed much more making other people do bad deeds. Um, and particularly uh, there's a there's a part where it talks about how he particularly enjoyed the corruption of innocence. And so he would bring people into the house that were not wicked. They were not you know, these are not like drug addicts he found and brought there. They're like normal people. He would bring art, young artists and um, people who are, uh, you know, up and coming talents that are just, you know, fresh faced young adults. And then he would bring them there and take advantage of their naivety and everything else. And, and they would become shelves of themselves. You know, if they survived the thing at all, they would go on to be just, you know, haunted dead men walking. Yeah. yeah haunt- um, destroyed by their choices. So there's definitely a, uh, he's definitely a satanic reference type character where he is um, his 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 greatest threat is that he make he, he's the one who invites and encourages others to do evil. And if you resist that, I mean, if you were to walk into the Blasco house and refuse to participate, he would probably not physically be a threat to you. 
um, because it, it the the book and the movie both kind of seem to imply that he he wasn't necessarily a murderer, like he wasn't going to come and hit you with an axe or, or an overt but, one anyway. Yeah, um, but uh, it's just that people listened to him and they did what he said to do, and over time it killed him. So in that sense, he is a murderer, but it's really more like. I'm just going to like leave the way you. for you to murder yourself and I'm going to sit back and watch and enjoy it. Yeah. That's the most sadistic version, right? Mm-hmm. That you kind of, he, he facilitates your suicide. Yeah. Uh, and that way, if you even, if you escape with your life, you feel defiled the rest mm-hmm. of it, you know? And he really does it through like facilitating sin. Yeah. I mean, do I'm what sure you he, want to do. I'm sure he wouldn't put it in those terms. The character probably wouldn't put it in those terms. I don't know if Matheson would as the writer, but um, he's, He's not saying like do what you want to do. Let's all go skiing this weekend. It's like do what you want to do. Let's let's do cocaine and mm-hmm. see what happens next. You some know? more food, some more wine. Yeah, she is pretty, isn't she? Yeah, you know. So it's uh, it's clearly like his temptation is towards evil because he knows what will happen if you pursue evil without restraint. You'll die. It'll mm-hmm. kill you. Yeah. Uh, I, I, again, I just think that is such a brilliant analysis there. So there's another time in the movie, I think I referenced it earlier, where they, they mention he moves unseen among the guests and even does it yeah. as a ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're like, well, he's not here. He's That's gone. A great moment. Yeah, it's, it's and they're a like, moment. He, we wouldn't have noticed him if he was because yeah. we're fixated on the record player or whatever. Yeah, the record player starts playing a pre-recorded message that's super spooky. Yeah. Um, it just says like, welcome to the house. I hope you find what you're looking for. And again, in, bo- in both the yeah. book and the movie. I so think it's the same. I think it's the same text. In yeah. fact, I remember thinking it was really similar. And, uh, you know, one of the characters, I think Ben Fisher does most of our exposition on him. He just says, like, it was said that he could move unseen about the house. He could move among the guests and nobody would notice him. And they're like, ah, that's silly. And he's like, how do you know? We've all been staring at this record player for the last two minutes. He could have been standing right next to us. Yeah. Which is great. You know, that's great. Ghost story stuff. And so fits your image of the devil, right? Like he's invisibly moving. But as you just described, he's walking about seeing whom he can devour, right? Uh, And then just to kind of move to the end, what we find out about Belasco, he is in Ben's recounting this towering giant figure, the roaring giant. Six foot five or something like that. They call him the roaring giant. He's a figure of incredible intimidation. But what you find out about him is that he has amputated his own legs. Yeah. He was born short. Very short, yeah. Cut his own legs or had them cut off so he could have these prosthetics that elevated his stature. Mm -hmm. And so really what you find out, fitting your satanic motif, is this looming terrifying character is really this I don't say pitiful, yeah. but this despicable character who's consumed by vanity and pride, yeah. which is very much satanic, sure. you know. And part of the reason why he hates everyone is because – in the movie, that's a bit of an anticlimax, in my opinion, the mm-hmm. way they finished it, where it's just like, oh, he had little man syndrome. And that's why he was like the most evil person who ever lived practically. And you're like, well, that's a little underwhelming. Uh, book does a better job of it. Yeah. But um, – yeah, that's kind of what they discover at the end. They eventually find Belasco's body behind the chapel, um, somehow perfectly preserved um, and and also protected from electromagnetic frequencies. Yes. Interestingly enough, in lead-lined walls. Yeah. So um, his energy can stay. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is one of the great interesting twists of the of the book too, and the movie for that matter, um, is the. Well, what was Dr. Dr. Scientist's name? Barrett. Lionel Barrett. Yeah. Yeah. Lionel Barrett. uh, So I guess we can move on to him now. Yeah. So Barrett's character comes in as a skeptic. He's a skeptic of supernatural things, but he also agrees that there is energy that could be described as psychic energy. And it produces phenomenon. Yeah. Stuff happens. He doesn't deny that there's physical manifestations of this. 
um, they they list off some of them, and and he's like, yeah, these things are all legitimate. We see them; they they're observable phenomena. Phenomena, and uh, so he is there to try to do that. Now, one of the things that he's also there to do, apparently, is to fire up this machine that he has designed, whereby he has a theory that um, the energies which cause psychic manifestations have a certain frequency, and he's going to build a machine that can kind of counter that. And sort of disperse the energies. Yeah, it's supposed to be, I guess, sort of like, um, I don't know, spraying a fire with a fire hose, I guess. Like they, um, it just hisses away into steam and there's nothing left, I think is the theory. And so uh, he has the machine brought there and builds it kind of on site. Like it's mostly built, but he has to kind of put the finishing touches on and he's going to fire this thing up towards the end and see what happens. And so he's almost, you can, you, you get from this that he's almost um, duplicitous in the fact that he, he has his own reason for being there besides actually trying to find answers for the financier. Um, he's wanting to, to try out his machine and see if he can kind of like cure um, hell house of its, of its issues. So he, um, he is successful in building the machine, but um, his character starts out as a skeptic of some kind. And this is another one that I wanted to bring up, which we kind of have hit a little bit, but there is a serious risk of extreme skepticism beyond, because one of the frustrating things about his character is that no matter what happens, no matter how much goes on, he never really comes to a place where he's prepared to accept that there's a personal malevolent entity that's trying to work against him and hurt him. Yes, well said. And... In that way, he is portrayed as just as naive as the young medium who is wide open to everything. So, like, extreme cynicism or extreme naivety, Mm -hmm. this movie kind of puts an equal sign between. It says neither one are going to safely navigate you through the real world. Yeah, and and as a result, it's a deadly error for him. He eventually uh, is killed by this thing. in a way, I guess you could say it was, he was killed by it. But his his goal is to um, put it into the scientific phenomenon. And he's he's definitely destroyed by it. Like, he's yes. killed. But I think it's so telling. Now, the book did a better job of being like, he was actually on to something. Yeah, yeah. But Belasco had insulated himself from just this kind of attack. And in fact, it was Belasco's undoing, too. Um, when Because the book kind of expanded on the idea that it turns out Barrett's machine was, was effective. And it mm-hmm. actually worked. And so um, the psychic phenomena, the only the problem with Barrett's theory was that he excluded the idea of a person behind the power. Yeah, yeah. But the power he understood. And so his machine negated it. But um, the only reason why um, it worked at all was because Belasco basically left a bunch of his energy out where it could get the machine could get at it. Mm-hmm. So it severely weakened him. Um, but he wanted to let Dr. Barrett think that his machine worked. Then pull a switcheroo on him and kill him as a ghost, and uh, in the to crush his life yes, long, so that he goes to his grave thinking he's he was a failure. Yeah, you know? and um, and Fisher figures this out because when he actually goes toe to toe with the spirit at the very very end in the climax. He's like, I would have been annihilated by this thing last time, except he's weak now because Barrett's machine killed off three fourths of his power or something yeah. like that, and um, and it was it was actually Belasco's pride. In being like, oh, I'm going to get him. I'll he sacrifice kind of a big chunk. Himself. Yeah. yeah. And, and so he was able to be kind of defeated that way. Well, before we leave Barrett, though, I think at the end, it's, it's really well done in the movie over and against the book, where I generally think the book is superior. Mm-hmm. When when he fires off the machine and it looks like everything's worked, mm-hmm. uh, Ben is running around telling him, hey, you did it, man. Yeah. This place is empty. Everybody leaves. 
then the meters start registering, no, there's a huge swell of this energy coming back. Yeah. And the thing he says last in the movie is, I do not accept this. Yeah. And you're like, well, buddy, it doesn't matter if it's accepted. Like, do you accept a tidal wave coming? Because it's coming. Yeah. And I just thought it was a really good element that said, yeah, his his scientism is not going to help him either. It's going to, in fact... Well, it kind of makes you like it. Sort of pulls the, the the curtain back and says, like, oh, he doesn't really believe in science, yeah, uh, because the science says let's um, let's believe in these these instruments and mm-hmm. let's believe in what's being said here and, and like what what is recorded on these instruments. And he he's like, no, I refuse. I'm not gonna I'm gonna believe in my theory. He's kind of almost more of a like I have faith in myself and my ability to judge over, which is very similar to the issue that. Um, uh, Florence had absolutely so where she they're kind of on one side of the same coin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which is kind of more sophisticated storytelling than I guess I would have guessed from. Yeah. I would have found in a book called Hill House. Sure, you know yeah. uh, the last guy then is Ben, mm-hmm. and um, the thing I like about Ben is that Ben was a wonder guy who was yeah he was the, like a teenager the first time they went in. and the most like impressive medium the world had ever seen and everybody was like oh this guy's the real deal he's actually able to do a bunch of this stuff so, and then he's humbled mm-hmm. gets beat survives but, though apparently. survives but becomes a coward yeah you know like he multiple times he tells Florence don't open yourself up mm-hmm. you're gonna get eaten alive but it leaves him in this sideline position yeah he's kind of useless in the actual investigation portion because he is uh Unable to uh, open himself up to where he can use his abilities as a medium to like interact with the supernatural part of what's going on in the house, and kind of leaves Florence out to the mercies yeah. of yeah. whatever monster. He basically just hangs around and, and drinks bourbon and um, doesn't, uh, and then kind of talks talks uh, down to everybody else a little bit. I, I like the character a lot. I'm making him sound like a huge jerk, but he. Um, he has a very like real like a hyper realist mm-hmm. look of it where he's like this we're not we're not going to be able to fix this problem this is beyond any of us we just need to stay here survive, survive if we it. can keep, take the money and run and uh, that's kind of his motivation although it's revealed that um, like throughout the time being there that he kind of wants another crack at this thing um, sort of like a Rocky type situation where he's like I got my you know I got took it on the chin last time but I was just a kid then. I'm out of practice because I've been. I mean, the book talks about how he intentionally got caught as a flim flam artist, so people would quit calling him about yeah. like super, like come and be a medium, so he would get himself busted on purpose as a, as a liar, and um, so he's sort of th- thought of as a charlatan now, but he knows that he actually can do it, and so um, initially he comes across as this really cynical, like I'm just in it for the money, leave me alone, I'm just going to survive, and the truth comes out that he's really a very courageous character and he overcomes his reluctance to deal with this. And he is the one who is ultimately standing against Belasco in the sort of the last showdown. And that's what I like so much about him because he, again, humbled becomes a coward, but then he's redeemed and he, mm-hmm. he kind of takes the field again yeah. and stares Belasco down yeah. and ends up being the, the hero of the stories. Yeah. So I'm with you. I liked him. And it doesn't end up in a big CGI mess. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a great place to bring this up. So you also had included this. Yeah, what ruins a horror film. And thankfully, this movie doesn't do a lot of it, but you're right with your number one. It's a CGI mess. Yeah, that's the number one thing that I think blows up most horror movies. And I'm going to, something we talked about earlier, I'm just going to slide it in under there is showing too much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And particularly if you show too much too soon. Yeah, you got to reveal. I mean, you shouldn't show the thing if it's a monster of some kind before 
I mean, you can show pieces and parts of it, but not before like the third act, which is actually why that third act transition or fifth act, depending on what like structure they're using, that last act is usually like this is the time. Like this, if it's going to fall apart, it's going to be right now because like how are we going to respond to their creature? I'm reminded we did a thing on Stranger Things a while back. And when the mind flayer came through and was like the meat monster, I was like, well, that's not very scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, but because again, uh, your imagination's always better. Well, him as a shadowy mental threat. I mean, sort of like the Hannibal Lecter type threat, yeah. where it's like, yeah, he's in a cage the whole movie, but he's still the scariest character in it. Yeah. You know, well, not almost, almost the whole movie. And so, uh, not to go into Stranger Things too much, but like that's an example of one where CGI kind of gets in the way of my ability to be afraid of this this threat, this entity. You put boundaries on him. Even yeah, if he's sure. as big as a mall, yeah. he's now bounded. And he really, you know, I mean, there's there's nothing about that that a, that a M1 Abrams tank couldn't kill. You know? Sure. I mean, he's a threat to a bunch of 13-year-olds at a mall, but, like, you could kill that thing. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe you could say, well, it would just come back because it's a monster and it's made of whatever. I trust we'll have tanks, too. Sure, then. yeah. I mean, but there's there's just smarter ways to go about it. Yeah. And we don't really get that in this movie. Obviously, in 73, they didn't really have CGI to do that with, but... They don't lean on some sort of gruesome monster at the end. It's really just the character, the actor is screaming at an empty room with wind blowing around. He acts it really well, and it's I care about what happens, and I have I understand what's going on, and so at that moment, that climax feels really fitting to me. The only time that they really get away from that mm-hmm. is when the stupid cat attacks. Oh yeah, and it's just really hard to make a cat attack, particularly nineteen seventy three, look credible. <laughs> yeah, you know, or threatening. I mean, yeah. like I wouldn't really want to be bit by a cat, but I could stomp on a cat, like yes. if it was if it was going after me. I mean, it's just it was a house cat. It was not like a you know mountain lion was coming into the room. The best thing they do is to put a point of view camera from the cat's perspective so you don't actually see the cat and turn it into a pursuer. Like, if you're going to do this, just don't ever let me see the stinking cat because you'll remind me it's it's less big than a shoebox. You could kick it across the room. Yeah. Um, And then for some reason, they they have the cat cut in half, which actually that happens in the book, too. It happens in a different location, but... Um, yeah. Christy and I are watching a show. We've only watched the first one. It's kind of a, it, it, it's very similar to the X-Files. Mm-hmm. It's called Evil. It's on CBS. Okay. And some of the guys on the, the Pop Culture Quorum Day podcast uh, Facebook group said, hey, you should watch this. Mm-hmm. And I'm enjoying it. It's good. Uh, Christy had a different experience, but like there's a demonic element. Mm-hmm. And they show the demon a lot, oh. really up front. And he okay. like talks and... Uh, again, Christy and I had a completely different experience because yeah. she's like, oh, that's really frightening. She doesn't watch a ton of horror movies like oh, okay. me. So I think the visual got her. Okay. I was like, ah, oh, darn it. Don't do that. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. he, he looks like the Green Goblin from the uh, Raimi uh, Spider-Man movies. Uh, and, no. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, again, the show is good. Uh-huh. But I was like, just let him be a voice in the darkness. Let me wonder if he's even real for a while. Yeah, let the eyes glow out of the darkness for a little while. Exactly. Now, again, Christy got scared because she doesn't Mm. truck with horror movie stuff. But I was like, just let that be the season finale. Visuals are almost like, I don't know, you need a stand-in for Mm. this threat. And the threat is kind of... I don't know. The scariest ones to me are the ones that are really hard to like quantify. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like the thing. There's some really great effects in the thing when you yeah. see the monster. The, the alien in Alien is really good. But well, to your point about Predator, Predator is just a ripple. Yeah. In 
you know, in the air. He's like, really hard to kill, and he's really good at killing. Yep. And so we're all just kind of scared that we're going to die in the jungle. Yep. Um, so it looks that, like a heat shimmer. Yeah, sure. And so it leaves my imagination. Now they do with the visuals with the predator. I think work. Sure, but yeah. they the non visuals work a lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, so number two, the absolute kryptonite to my enjoyment of a horror oh, movie. Gosh, yeah, is if the rules aren't clear. Yeah. Or they break their own rules all of a sudden for reasons. Yeah. You know, um, all of a sudden, this rule that we've had for so long, we, we learn new lore and the yeah. lore is thrown away. And you're like, you know what? That's lazy. Yeah. Uh, there's ways to there's ways to make changes yeah. to what you're doing. There's a way to, to do that. And it's it's not just like leaving a copy of the script laying around for the for the characters to read and find out that, oh, look, the vampire now can't do this or the MacGuffin's here. Yeah. Let's use it. Actually, the, the series that I think does this really well, it, it there's a horror scene within this, but just in terms of world building, is the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. So when Aslan goes to the stone table, mm-hmm. it's all lawful. Sure. It's all, and he everybody acknowledges this is what the rules say. Mm-hmm. And there's later on when, um, oh, I can't remember which one of the Pevensey girls, she gets a magic book. And she casts a spell that all invisible things will be made visible. Mm-hmm. And Aslan pops into the room and she's like, whoa. <laughs> and he's like, well, you made me visible. Mm-hmm. And she says, surely you don't have to play by those rules. And he growls and he says, don't you think I would keep my own laws? Yeah. And I just thought I, Narnia is yeah. so much more weighty mm-hmm. with that kind of world building. And so if they're not going to do that, if now all of a sudden it turns out that we found out the witch uh, doesn't like copper, yeah. You know, and that that just basically um, could have been known at any point. We just needed it for the third act. Sure. Yeah, that's other than like gratuitous gore. Mm-hmm. That's the quickest route to turning off a horror movie. So I'm, I'm reminded of we brought up Alien a couple of times. Did you see Alien Covenant? Is that the one where like there's the creators? No, wait. Or- I'm thinking of Prometheus. Yes, I saw Prometheus. Okay, so Prometheus is a good example of this, where like, all right, Alien had this really clear like life cycle of the Alien. It's an egg. It's a face hugger. It's a chest burster. It's a xenomorph, and it kills everyone. Mm-hmm. In Prometheus, I have no idea what was going on. There was like black goo. There was like these weird snake things coming out of the eggs. There was some sort of squid baby. There was like a maybe a xenomorph, and then there was like these huge white guys, the space jockeys or whatever. Yeah. And I have no idea what anything like th- there were no rules. Is my yeah. point is like I don't know what's going on. I, I have no reason to know what's coming. Um, in you know, in Alien or let, here's another example in Aliens, this is the Alien <laughs> Two. Um, we know they're on the same planet. There's eggs there. Um, there's th- as soon as I see an egg, I know what's coming. Like I'm afraid. Don't get close to it. Don't go mm-hmm. over there. You know they don't know that though. But I know that there's a face hugger in it. I know what's going to happen if a face hugger comes out of it. And so I know the rules. And so I know what to be afraid of and what not to. And when you don't have those rules, if your world is not built enough to where I know what's what means what, then, yeah, you're not. I just there's nothing. I just I'm pretty much going to turn it off. Yeah. But if I am going to watch it, I'm not going to be scared because I'm like, oh, this is all totally arbitrary. It's just whatever they think. Which is like that's the problem that sometimes Superman gets into, too, to go outside of like when he can do anything. It doesn't matter that he does anything. Sure. You know, need some kind of limit, some consistency. Yeah. 
Uh, number three, I think we've talked about this a little bit, unrelatable or incredibly foolish characters. Because mm-hmm. then you're just like, you know, you kind of deserve to die. Yeah. I'm not going to say that about anybody in the real world. Sure. But I'm happy to say it about yeah, a fictitious There's a lot of character. characters that deserve it. Yeah. yeah. Um, excessive dependence on cheap tricks, which we've also touched on. Jump scares, extreme gore, nudity, ridiculous violence. Yeah. To me, that is the horror movie equivalent of a, of a, a, a sex and boob comedy. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just fart jokes and crass sure. humor. Or like stand-up comedians who do that too, you or, know. Or, and this is probably not quite to the extreme, but like like a Michael Bay action film. Yeah, it's just explosions. Just like robots smashing explosions, rock music, pretty girls walking around, mm-hmm. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, whatever else. Smashing bad guys. Yeah. Um, there's not a whole lot else going on with it. And that's what I think a lot of – the horror movies that are that way, that are just kind of mind-numbingly dumb. Well, that kind of goes back to rule two, right? Like, mm-hmm. you need to build a world. There yeah. should be a story here. There's it, some- it should have. A, it should also have one fir- foot firmly planted in the real world. Um, even if it's like a space thing, like the people need to feel like real people mm-hmm. would act in a, in a situation like that. Um, if it's a, a haunted house thing, like even in, in the Haunting of Hell House or in the Hell House that we're talking about, the Legend of Hell House. There's a there's some references made where well most of these other places that have been quote unquote haunted houses have all been debunked but there's just this one that kind of has nobody's managed to successfully prove that there's no haunting there it's just a little bit weird and so we're in a world where like I know that there's not haunted houses in the sense that there are in most haunted house movies but there's there's this world where there's one that might be let's go to that one sure and so i'm like oh that feels like a real world that feels like so there our the world are, right like that's what we're all kind of doing yeah. with ghost houses we're like ah maybe yeah, you know sure. yeah good point um insufficient mystery excessive mystery i think also kind of dovetails with the um the idea that like there's got to be something understandable here yeah you know you answer some questions and yeah. you have to ask some questions or you don't have to have knowledge to you have to have access to knowledge you couldn't have grasped yeah you know just all of a sudden you have an epiphany mm-hmm. and it's it's not earned mm-hmm. i hate that stuff i mean yeah. you and i taught at the same classical school i'm back again this year you're building a bookstore empire um we did like uh what's the term i'm looking for like sherlock holmes style excerpts for a speech yeah, competition like mystery uh, murder mystery stuff yeah. yeah and so sometimes those uh hercule perot payoffs yeah. you're like gosh you would have to be really smart yeah but yeah, it goes I right. I that problem with Holmes. I'm like, ah, nobody would get that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the skilled writer, though, takes you right up to that line and go, you know, I guess Batman probably could have put the work in to know that. Yeah. As opposed to just letting him have some Gnostic knowledge that descends yeah. from the class. Yeah, they don't have the deus ex machina feel yes. where it's like, oh, we've all written ourselves into a corner. Um, we need to write in some lazy, like, escape. Mm, he found a scroll. Yeah. Behind that lamp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, something like that. Uh, and I, I think that that would be my one criticism with Holmes is that when you read it, you're like, oh, you can go back and reread it after you know what's going on. And you're still like, the clues are not written. Like, they're not in here. Nobody would – no reader would ever know that. But it's still kind of fun to see Holmes do it. Sure. So um, – The best ones, though, are the ones – I mean – when Shyamalan has his fastball, if you go watch yeah. M. Night Shyamalan, some of his movies are terrible. Well, if you go back to his old, like, Sixth Sense, and even, I, I was kind of a fan of The Village and of Signs. Oh, me too. Yeah. And every one of those, he's earned. Like, yeah. you're like, oh my gosh, everything was red that was a dead person mm-hmm. or whatever, you yeah. know. Um, the, the third one, which is 
my unholy trinity of killing a horror movie, ultimate triumph of evil. Yeah. You know, I said my appeal is this is a moral world. Mm-hmm. It just becomes nihilism yeah. if evil wins. Yeah, I can't stand that. That's part of the reason why I didn't really like uh, the Haunting of Hill House book. Um, it didn't really necessarily have an ultimate triumph of evil, but there was. I, I hated the resolution. Yeah, and so the main character is destroyed, right? Yeah, yeah, and and it seems to be as a result of mental illness. It wasn't even really related to the supernatural, except in that it supernatural may have influenced her, possibly. Um, so I, I didn't like that. She went from miserable circumstances yeah. to getting this parachute on this team mm-hmm. to just being destroyed. I'm like, you, you just come away like, I need a Prozac and yeah. Yeah. something that that has some reflection of the goodness that's still in even a fallen world. Yeah. Uh, your last one I'm just going to ask you about, because I'd like to hear you elaborate on it. Number seven says, idiotic premises are rarely the cause of a horror film's yeah. failure. So how many horror movies have you seen that are based on a silly idea that actually, when you say it, when you just say it, deadpan. I'm thinking of like The Ring where it's like, when you watch a VHS tape and then seven days later, a little girl comes and murders you. (laughs) And you're like, well, that's not a very good premise, but they actually did a pretty good job of making, and that's not the best horror movie ever, but it's No, that's a great point though, Terry. That's an example I can think of where the premise is kind of goofy, but... um, The original Child's Play. Yeah, sure. Which, again, we're not talking about the best movies ever made, but they're pretty, you know, that's a dumb idea. And it it ended up being executed in a way that was fairly effective. Sure. My mind's rolling. Like the guy who never runs always shows up ahead of you in a slasher movie. You know, you're right. They really do ask you to suspend the disbelief pretty far. Mm -hmm. And there's just something about it. I mean, even like Friday the 13th, one of the things a lot of people don't know if you aren't a a fan of the series at all, is that the original Friday the 13th did not have Jason Voorhees Mm -hmm. in it at all. It was his mom. And uh, spoiler alert, sorry if you hadn't seen it what, yet. What are we talking about? 1980. So yeah. Yeah, you had your 40 chance. years. <laughs> yeah. 40 years. You would be in midlife if you were born when it came out. Yeah. So yeah, sorry if you got spoiled. Sorry about that. Um, Kevin Bacon dies. <laughs> um, and, uh, but the sequel is like, oh, yeah, what if we made it to where the kid didn't really drown? And yes. he actually came back and he wears a hockey mask and uses an axe or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, well, that's a dumb idea. But – how many movies have there been? And they've probably, I don't know how much they've grossed. They're probably not all hits, but they're also not expensive. So I don't think an idiotic premise is a, is a necessary. Now there are plenty of them that have bad premises that are bad. Sure. Don't do well, but there's a lot of them that are pretty stupid sounding when you just like read it off a page. Like if you just read a summary and you're like, that's a terrible idea, but you can eat a lot of that. If the world's consistently built around it, right? Like the grudge. Yeah. The, the hands come out of your hair. You have to go to that one house yeah. to catch it. Sure. Or like It Follows. I don't know. Did you ever see It Follows? I didn't see It Follows. It Follows is basically an STD. Again, spoiler alert. But if you have sex, this thing is going to come after you and try to kill you. Okay. But it's just rigorously built around that premise. Okay. And so the movie super works for yeah. that. It yeah. sounds like a tight, uh, tightly written kind of monster. So that's one of the things I kind of thought that it might be worth mentioning just because I think sometimes people might think, well, if it's based on some dumb idea, then there's no way it'll work. But we've actually seen quite a few dumb ideas be done well. Yeah. Um, at least they seem dumb. I mean, I'm kind of like the, the all time great example of a dumb idea that worked was the Ninja Turtles in like the 80s where that's you're like, right. what moron came up with this idea? And I don't know how much they made. I don't think that they've done as as well since then. But like when the nin, the mutant ninja turtles came out when I was a kid, they were like they were definitely the end thing. Oh yeah, all the kids had the toys and mm-hmm. everybody watched it and they had those rubbit puppet puppet monster movies. 
um, that I think were pretty successful. Yeah, yeah. Um, Until the sequels kind of lost yeah, the uh, thread. But yeah. the first movie, everybody I knew watched that multiple times. Mm-hmm. Well, so Terry, is there anything we've left off here? Oh well, what did you think of the movie overall? I, I don't think we ever really gave it like a. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I'm going back to this one. Yeah, and I own The Exorcist, and I watch The Exorcist mm-hmm. fairly regularly. Yeah, I don't know that I'm going back to Hell House, but I I feel like if we were playing baseball, it's a double. Yeah, maybe a stand up triple. Okay, they didn't make any really truly stupid decisions. Yeah. They built a fairly good world. Mm-hmm. They they didn't overplay their hand. Yeah. You can tell it probably didn't cost a ton. Yeah. This was also a British version of it. You can tell they mm-hmm. shot the whole thing on a sound stage, and they probably did it for pretty cheap. And it was yeah. a pretty able movie, I thought. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't give it an A. I'd probably give it like a B- minus or C plus. Yeah, maybe. that's exactly where I'm at. Again, some of the sexual content, I just don't – that's not something I want to expose myself sure. to. Yeah. The, but, you know, if this were like a, an early draft of what became the Haunting of Hill House miniseries, mm-hmm. uh, I think I'd be like, you know what? That, you, were on, you were on a good path. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't even mind seeing somebody revisit this material sure. if it wasn't someone who wanted to revel in the mm-hmm. sexual content. You know, yeah. if you could give this to someone who's going to take kind of an approach like Matheson did and say, yeah, it's going to degenerate people and we should see it as scandalous and destructive. This is a, yeah, this is a problem. It's yeah. a big problem. Yeah, I'd come back to it, which also probably means it'll never be remade because Hollywood can't yeah. let itself. Well, this is too much of a, it's kind of like what you were saying before, this is too much of a black and white world Yeah, where postmodernism just kind of won't let it be. I would shudder to think of what would have come out if somebody tried to make this into a, a modern remake. There's my, a, my biggest gripe with the movie, though, is that they left out the scariest scene from the book. Oh, okay. Which was the sauna scene. Do you yeah. remember that? That was the scariest sequence in the whole book. And uh, It was almost like something out of Stephen King's It. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, that, and I, lo- I love that sequence in the book. You never really... So if you're a reader of the book... Um, there's reference pretty early in the book to, like, stay away from the sauna because it feels evil to me. And uh, he goes in there anyway because he's a skeptic and some sort of monster bothers him, basically. Yeah. But uh, Good call. Yeah. Good call. That's another thing that the book did, which we don't want to devolve into, like, comparing and contrasting too much. But, like, Dr. Barrett's health is declining throughout the book. And it's really never shown in the movies. Like, Even he's kind of given himself up. And I don't know if it's just meant to be foreshadowing of his death or if it's more like... He's expending himself trying to prove his theory, and he's willing to die here if he has to. Well, and you like him more because he's also like, I need to leave something for my wife, so I'll take the big payday. And it even kind of sets up her character arc because his physical stuff affects help. Yeah. So, yeah, the book, and the book just has more time. Sure. The book has more time, so. It must have been hard. I mean, as a as the author of the book, you you clearly had something to do because the book obviously came out first. It came out in seventy or sixty nine or something like that, and so he obviously had a story he wanted to write. He wrote it, and then they came to him to do the screenplay. I assume, unless he just independently wanted to get you know the ball rolling and did it himself. But um, how do you know what goes on the cutting room floor? Yeah. Where I'm sure that that was agonizing. Um, well, and the movie characters just become much more um, stereotypes. Yeah, you know, they're more complex in the book. Yeah, yeah. You just don't have as much time for characterization. Although there's only four of them, which mm-hmm. is helpful because you don't have to. You know, there's not ten of them. It's not like the Avengers or something. Where it's like thirty characters that have to have something right. to do. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of um, 
like with the Exorcist, you know, there's like the um, there's multiple cuts of the Exorcist. And I think the most recent one, which I think might be the easiest to get now, is the like writer's cut as opposed to the director's cut, which I guess the director's cut's just the the one that released. Yeah. But the writer's cut is got more of what William Peter Blatty wanted in it. And um, there's actually some things that are like less good, I think. But um, there's like some references to The Exorcist 2 in it, which is not what you want. No, no. <laughs> Let's just skip that. Yeah. The Exorcist 3 is okay. The Exorcist 3 has one of the best jump scares in the history of film. And absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. Uh, so, I mean, I, this is off subject, way off subject, but I went up to Washington, D.C. for a conference a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and I thought, I'm just going to listen to The Exorcist while because I was going to be alone. Around Georgetown, yeah. And I never went to the stairs. I should oh, have. yeah, yeah. They're and there. They're it there. never dawned on me. But I was listening to the Millennium Edition of the book where Blatty went and added some stuff. Oh. And there is a scene in... Karis's priestly cell that mm-hmm. he added that I think is really good. Okay. And I, 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 you could never shoehorn it back in the movie. They should never remake the movie. Oh, no. no. But if you're, if like, you're like, man, I want some more exorcist content. Mm-hmm. And Blatty self consciously was writing this as a Christian. If you ever look into yeah. what he's saying, mm-hmm. I don't think it's off limits for a Christian conscience. Obey your own conscience, listener. Well, he's obviously a Roman Catholic. He's coming from a Roman Catholic yes. perspective. So. But he wanted to provoke people to question secularism. Yeah. And uh, I, which I think is a, maybe we should have brought this up too, but a really good horror story should be more than just people trying not to die. Yes, but there needs to be themes, just like yeah. every other story. There should be something like a thesis right. to the fictional work. And I think that's why the extras. And there's another one called The Exorcism of Emily Rose that I've said a thousand times. I love. Same deal. Mm-hmm. They're they're trying to do more than just make you jump at one minute, and, or sorry, an hour and two minutes in, or whatever. How many movies would you say are just? Basically got made directly because of the exorcist. Oh my word. There's a whole exorcism industry. Yeah. yeah. It's its own subgenre at this point. There there are people walking around with jobs as exorcists mm-hmm. in uh not just Protestantism, but Well, I'm just talking about movies. Well, what I'm saying is it spirals even oh, further yeah. out because there are these people who are like, I'm a I'm a Wiccan exorcist and stuff. Oh. And the the only reason that's credible is because we all watched Reagan's head spin around. Yeah, you know. Sure. And uh it really is amazing what a footprint that film has had. Yeah, it really is. That's uh, that might be worth. The, I haven't read the book. Yeah, um, I probably should pick that one up. We have one in the store. I just haven't haven't read it. So yeah, I can pass you the audio book if you want to listen to it too. So I might good one to listen to this time of year. If Absolutely, you're, if you're a person who enjoys Halloween, which I do. Me too. So, I hope that didn't scandalize anybody. You're probably aware by now. <laughs> uh, I don't get too bent out of shape about spooky stuff. So, my family celebrates Reformation Day. Yeah, but if we didn't have that binary, we would totally celebrate Halloween. Yeah, you know. Uh, so anyway, I guess we kind of ended on some sidebarring here. But Terry, this is a blast. Thanks so much yeah. for your work on this. Thanks for proposing it. Yeah. So I think the the conclusion we come to here, this one more so than westerns. Is got like I was able to draw more real truth from this one. I think mm-hmm. we hit every, pretty much everything on here. Um, well, we didn't mention really so much that death and hell are the result of sin, and hauntings oh, and yeah. stories can be kind of seen as like a metaphor for that, where they only hauntings occur when there's grievous sin committed. Either um, either a victim or a perpetrator usually lingers to cause because I mean problems. justice has been done yeah. and needs to be addressed. And so when justice is done, then they move on to yeah. the afterlife. So that that I think can be. I don't know if it's intentionally written that way, but. I think it can be seen as like a haunting occurs when evil has happened. Yeah. So like that's 
that's that's evil is significant enough to impact. I mean, I think that's deeply biblical that acts of evil can can ripple out into the lives of people who never had any direct contact with the first Mm -hmm. version, you know. So, yeah. So uh, next time we do another horror, we'll play with that one further. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I think of the two we've done so far, I would say horror is, is sort of the reigning champ at this point in the tournament of which genre is the most useful for Christians to extract. Um, trying to decide how to phrase this. I guess the, the most interesting worldview study um, for a Christian to look at would be a horror film, if you can handle it. If, you know, if you're a person who's not going to say, like, sitting in front of a movie that makes me afraid is a is a problem for my Christian walk. If that's what you, if that's you, then you just need to not go there because it's mm-hmm. not worth it. Here, here. Um, but if you are a person who uh, finds these kinds of things interesting, and then, and I'm kind of half and half. Like I'm not as big a horror fan as you. Um, I, I'd rather read it than watch it usually. But um, I am intrigued by it. I find it really. I find most of the time I find uh, the ones that I like and watch. It's because I find. The premise just interesting. I just kind of want to read about the thing, which is part of the reason why I didn't like the haunting of Hill House because I misunderstood the premise. Basically. Yeah, I thought, oh, this will be just like Hill House. It'd be like a haunted house. I feel like they bait and switched you. Yeah, and I I can't really fault Shirley Jackson for that because everybody kind of lumps it in there because it's kind of a ghost story, but the ghosts are very backseat, and um, I was just bummed by that. So Hill House, on the other hand, is much more of a ghost story mm-hmm. so and pretty well done all things considered yeah. you know well terry where can people find you on the interwebs they can find me at wob cookville on facebook that's at w-o-b cookville that's the the stores page and you can befriend wallace o books um the bearded dragon on facebook that's my alter ego my social media alter ego and uh store has an instagram page but i can't remember what it's called <laughs> But if you go to the Facebook, you can find a link to it. So Cool. And you should do that, listeners. Uh, also, if you live within any kind of reasonable driving distance of Cookville, Tennessee, you should come by and check out Walls of Books in Cookville, Tennessee. Terry does a good job. He didn't pay me to say this. He didn't ask me to say it. He didn't know I was going to. Terry does a good job of really cultivating good stock. And I think if you're a person who likes bookstores, figure out some reason to drive between Nashville and Knoxville, stop in in Cookville, get some lunch, and go buy World of Books. Walls uh, of books. Excuse me. Walls of books. <laughs> Good night. I had a stroke. Uh, Let me plug your thing, too. So if you're a fan of horror and you like to listen to genre-related content, then you need to check out Saw Something Scary, the other podcast. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, if you're someone who does want to do that and you're coming from a Christian perspective, we have reviewed The Exorcist. We have reviewed The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And on many of those, you know, I said I'm not aiming that podcast at a faith-based community, but I'm, I am I want to be a Christian in public spaces. And so I'm very clear about how my faith impacts watching those movies, and I think those might be good jumping in points if somebody does want to start listening to. Did you guys review The Exorcist 2? We did not, no. <laughs> no, I don't think. It's probably the best strategy for us to, uh, to just avoid it entirely. That's one of the all-time bad movies. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it just deserves to be forgotten, and we should pretend that Exorcist Three is the sequel. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of have gotten there. Yeah, and then sure. isn't there a or there's a prequel? Yeah, the pre- dude, the prequels are a fascinating study of like Hollywood going crazy. Okay, neither movie is particularly seen, good. I haven't seen any of the prequel ones. So there's two prequels that are both supposed to be the prequel. Okay, so they're like coincidental. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about this further off air, but those Wikipedia reads are great reads if you okay. want to look at like 
how a movie being made can go sideways. That sounds like um, sidebar. Sorry, it's um, okay. I mean, James it's- Bond when when there was some there was some business argument about who owned the rights after um, Ian Fleming passed away. Yes. Sean Connery was brought in to do. Uh, I think Thunderball was one of them, and then Never Say Never Again. They were the exact same plot, and they were produced by two different um, companies. And Sean Connery was brought in, and he was too old to be doing it and had a toupee. And it was just kind of an embarrassment to everyone involved. You were right. <laughs> and Roger Moore was in Thunderball. And so they were like the exact same film, but done by two different production companies. So. It, uh, give me another comparison. It's like when you read in church history when like there's those times where there's like multiple popes and they're oh yeah they're uh, excommunicating <laughs> no, each other. excommunicating. Yes. <laughs> That's very much what the Exorcist prequels are like. Well, there you go. On that happy note... <laughs> Friends, we are on almost every social media platform at PCCDPod. There's a Facebook group that's one of the few good reasons left to be using Facebook. We'd love to connect with you there. Um, make sure that the other good reason to use Facebook, following uh, Walls of Books in Cookville, Tennessee, make sure you're doing that. And uh, Terry, thanks again, man. Yeah, I'm hoping pleasure. we get together and do something uh, uh, like this very soon. Maybe sci-fi. Sure, whatever. I think sci-fi was the next the next most voted for after horror. So I wonder if you and I can find a sci-fi film. I think our sci-fi tastes are similar. Yeah, that's not also horror. You know, oh, what that's like, a good question. Yeah, <laughs> we need to go find something that's actually just we can do like sci-fi. Star Trek: The Motion Picture or something. <laughs> What's the one where they go back and save whales? Uh, that's Star Trek Four, I think. <laughs> okay, maybe the whales. Star Trek. Or maybe it's fine. I can't remember now. I think every other, like every even numbered one was like slightly better. Okay. <laughs> well, Wrath of Khan was legitimately a good movie, but. Yeah. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe yeah, that's the one we'll we do. Wrath of Khan. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope it was a blast. We hope if you're celebrating Halloween, Reformation Day, or Harvest Carnival, <laughs> uh, we hope you do it safely. Tour Baptist friends. <laughs> yes. Uh, do it safely. Do it with great joy. And we will talk to you next time on the Pop Culture Cormdale podcast. Remember. We want to encourage you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God, because you are. Talk to you next time.